A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. We would be crazy to obviously have this opportunity to speak to you, Bill, and not ask you about interviewing that uh, that not very well-known baseball player. Um, I think his name was Michael <laughs> Jordan or something like that. We'd be crazy not to ask you about that interview experience. I think uh, summer of 95, Space Jam. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. We're all getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, he made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 30. Thanks for joining me. My website, inallairness.com, just add a forward slash and the episode number to view show notes. On this episode, I'm joined by my good mate, Todd Spear. In a first for the podcast, we act as joint hosts and interview Bill Woods, veteran Australian broadcaster and journalist. Bill anchored Australia's foray into the NBA on TV in the 1990s. We had a great wide-ranging chat. He talks about his years broadcasting the NBA and Australia's National League, the NBL, plus memorable interviews with the late, great Chuck Daly, Michael Jordan on the set of Space Jam, Hakeem Olajuwon, and plenty more. You'll also learn an interesting behind-the-scenes story on Shaquille O'Neal's Australian visit in 1993, plus Bill's thoughts on Aussie greats Shane the Hammer Heel and Andrew Gaze. We even recall some funny moments involving Bill and the one and only Phoenix Suns Gorilla. Towards the end of the episode, I also have great listener feedback to share. Now, on to the show. Our guest today has enjoyed an amazingly diverse career as a broadcaster, a journalist, newsbreaker, and now he's also entered the digital realm as well. In late 2012, he said goodbye to the TV network Channel 10 Australia after almost 25 years. Bill Woods, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, mate. It's great to reminisce. Oh, very good. I'm really excited to chat. So you're joined here as well by a good friend of mine, Todd Spear. So welcome, Todd. Thank you for having me. And as I'm sure you know, Adam, Bill was a big part of our NBA fandom in the 90s. Exactly right. No doubt about that. Now, if my research is correct, Bill, at the time in the early 1990s, you were working for Good Morning Australia when the opportunity to become involved with Channel 10's basketball coverage presented itself. Is that correct? Yes, Adam. It, it was kind of weird because at that time the network was ailing severely. In fact, there, were, there was all talk around that time that it would go under and uh, we were bailed out. That is, the network was bailed out by uh, a company called CanWest, which is a Canadian media company. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm telling you that is that it's actually quite interestingly linked to the whole basketball thing. The guy who was sent out to Australia to run the network on behalf of CanWest was Peter Viner, who was a basketball fan. And Peter was looking for some second-tier sports that Channel 10 could afford to pick up 
and make something of. Uh, obviously, the network didn't have the money to bid for major sports. It was the rugby league network, would you believe? A lot of people forget that up until the uh, time it went under. And Peter not only was a basketball fan, but had picked up on the fact that in Australia at the time, basketball wasn't just a massive participation sport. It was also a bit of a fad that the, that the NBA gear at the time was massively popular with young people. So it was sort of a subculture as well. And tapping into both those things, he decided to start putting NBA games on only late at night. And uh, eventually that led to buying the rights to the NBL coverage too. So it was a very interesting time. And Peter Viner was a major part of that. Okay, right, because the NBL was really just starting to be in a boom period as well around that time. Led, of course, in no small part to Australia's greatest player ever. Andrew Gaze, along with, as you said, the proliferation of the NBA merchandise and things that was hitting our shores too. So it was really almost a perfect storm of things that came together for that to be able to really happen. And that's when Channel 10, I guess, capitalised on that. Yes, the, the junior participation plus the subculture, it unveiled a lot of talent, I think. It was fashionable to play basketball at a high level. I mean, most people like me, for example, played a number of sports when they grew up. I represented my school in basketball. That doesn't mean much, to be honest. Uh, it was a great basketball school, but at least it gave me an opportunity to play basketball regularly and at a reasonable level. But there are a lot of other kids out there far more talented than me who then went on to play basketball at a very high level. And instead of going off to footy, they decided to stay with basketball. And because it was fashionable, you know, they had all the gear and all those things. It translated to a better NBL, I think. And at that time, too, the, the NBL was a reasonably lucrative league. I used to boast, and some people used to criticise us for saying so, but at one stage, it was pretty much the second best league in the world. I mean, every league was a mile behind the NBA, of course. But at that time, the European leagues didn't have much more money involved in their basketball than we did. We were able to attract the best imports outside the NBA at the time. It's changed dramatically now, unfortunately. But in those days, we had good quality. Uh, and, and the Americans knew, if they were young, they could come out to Australia. If they, if they missed out on being picked finally by an NBA team, they might have been drafted and then let go. They'd come out to Australia. They'd know they'd have a really good, solid season of basketball here, learn to develop their game. Then they could go back uh, and actually get back into the NBA, and a few of them did that. Yeah, definitely. Now, at this point, Todd, did you want to chime yeah. in? Yeah. You know, Bill, you talked a little bit about playing when you were younger. I'm just curious about your level of interest in the NBA prior to hosting 10's coverage. It wasn't obsessive. I knew about it. But in those days, and look, I'm going back a lot further than you two guys would go back because I'm 50. So, you know, in, in a country town in New South Wales back in the 1970s, you didn't hear much about the NBA and there was no real way of knowing about it. There was no internet in those days. Uh, I was also a soccer fan. I was a big sports fan uh, right across the board. So... Anything I could get about English soccer came from magazines that were in the newsagents about two weeks after they were actually published in the UK. So as far as the NBA goes, you heard nothing, only what you'd sort of read scant reports in the newspapers and things like that. So I certainly had an interest, but it was very hard to keep it going, you know, in those days. And, and really, right up until the early 90s, the period we're talking about, where 10 started showing the NBA games, there wasn't a lot of NBA on TV, even until then. This was a late-night thing, and to really intimately know the sport was very difficult until the internet came along, of course. Yeah, the ABC had the coverage, as Adam and I have spoken about before, in the late 80s. We're talking midnight to 1am. Yeah, exactly. And if, you, you know, if you're a kid in those days and your parents were strict, you had no chance. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You had to set the VCR overnight and hope that it recorded, and <laughs> the next morning wake up and check the tape. 
the VCR, yes. Does anyone know where they are now? Yeah, sadly, they've gone the way of the dodo, but I've still got one. Yeah, we'll provide a link to a VCR at the website. Your whole career in the media is quite remarkable, to be honest, but there's no way that we can sort of break it down into a half an hour chat. However, you talked about the 1991-92 season as when the games first started to air, the NBA games, they'd be on late at night. And usually the way they'd be presented to us would be that you were facing the camera, you'd introduce the game and you'd then go and show the highlights or it'd be an edited version perhaps of the game in most cases. Can you just talk a little bit about the first few times you remember getting set up and introducing the NBA to the Australian viewers? Yes, it was funny because I was very young at the time and so were the producers and, and other people at the network. I don't think they even knew what the NBA was. They would say, what, what are you doing? And I'd say, oh, well, it's only the best basketball you'll ever see. I mean, I, I knew what we were doing. Mm. Uh, we would sit down, uh, find out what game it was. We would do a, a very quick summary of what it was about to set it up. There's two things going on when you, when you do a, a program like that. You've got your diehard fans who know the game and are absolutely starved to see it. And they, they know the game very well, probably better than, than I did at the time. And you have to please them. So you want to be as brief as possible in summarising the game and let them watch basketball because that's all they want to do. They don't want to see me sitting in a chair talking about it. And as I said, they probably know more than I do. But the hard part with that is we're also trying to grow the game. We're trying to create an audience. Mm. So, and it's one of the, the great uh, conflicts when you're actually broadcasting sport is how much do you defer to the people who you want to invite to watch the game? Because the fans, the fans who really know the game, get a bit frustrated when you talk down to them. So it's very hard. If you set a game up at that time, for example, and said, oh, look, Magic Johnson versus Michael Jordan. It's Lakers, Bulls. Magic's done this. Michael's done that. You know, you guys might have been sitting there going, shut up. I know who these guys are. Just show me the game. But I've got to do that because there are people out there who might have stayed up late, you know. They might be too wired to go to bed yet, and they're thinking, oh, what's this NBA? I might check it out. You want that person to become a fan. So you need to kind of tell a bit of a story for each game. And we had this uh, situation where, you know, I, you know, I was only young and I was happy to be on TV, but I, I had to, this whole thing of trying to keep it as simple as possible, but enough to get people to watch the game. And that was the very most raw invitation to NBA on commercial TV. It was quite interesting. It was very small. It certainly opened a few doors. You guys went to the, the studio format for the 92-93 season and you added Steve Carfino, who was a prominent player in the, in the NBL. But was that sort of a sign that the, the, the game was growing as a, as a broadcaster sport, that you guys expanded the coverage, NBA action plus a game? Was that sort of a sign that the game was growing in Australia and that you needed to provide more coverage? Yes, two things happened and always do when you're covering a major sport. Uh, you need the audience for a start, but you also need sponsors to yep. come before the audience. For example, in those days, we, we weren't quite sure how, ma how many people out there were going to start watching the NBA or NBL coverage, for that matter. We knew that basketball was growing in popularity. The market tells you that because you see how many sponsors are getting involved in the game. And the sponsors who are sponsoring game nights and things like that, the ones who are interested in what they call bums on seats, you know, yep. in the old language, they're also going to believe that the game that they're drawing good crowds to is going to draw a good TV audience as well. So quite often, you'll contact the people who sponsor the game. To be honest, I can't remember who the sponsors were at the time, but the obvious ones are the people who sell the NBA gear. And in Australia, they're the people who have the licence to sell NBA gear. So they'd, they'd get on board. Uh, you'd have, you know, your Spaldings and whoever else is making balls at the time, for example, you know, those sort of people. So anyone involved in the NBA in that kind of way would be kicking in a few dollars to your sponsorship, and that's really important. Uh, without those dollars, without the advertising, you've got no program, especially for a network at the time that 
couldn't afford to put anything on air that wasn't totally paid for. But you mentioned the perfect storm, and, and that was another thing. Steve, Steve Carpino, of course, a great point guard in, in the NBL, and a really a great character by that time. His nickname was Mr. Magic. He was a colourful player, and he, um, he had plenty to say without being you know, overly controversial. He was a great communicator, very articulate. His career ended prematurely because of a back injury. I remember as a news reporter going to Steve's retirement news conference uh, with the Kings and uh, had covered Kings games. Before we started doing the NBA telecasts, of course, I was a regular TV reporter doing sport primarily, and I was covering a lot of Kings stories. And so through the Kings and other NBL stories, you get to know the players and you talk NBA and all those sort of things as well. So this whole culture was being built up between the clubs, Channel 10, myself, and everyone involved, the sponsors, as I mentioned. So it was quite extraordinary how well it all came together. And we're all very lucky, in a sense, that these things were going on. I hope it happens again soon. <laughs> yeah, you make a great point there about having Steve Carfino in the mix as well. And it seemed, based on your chemistry together, when you're on set for like the Saturday basketball or Sunday basketball, you had a really good time. And there was often joking backwards and forwards and... Uh, it just looked like you got along really well. So I guess that translated really well through the cameras as well. Yeah, we hit it off straight away. I don't really know why. Um, very different backgrounds and all those things, but we just had a great time together. Steve, very easy guy, though, to get on with and uh, very compatible, and he had a great attitude towards doing TV. He, he acknowledged straight away that, you know, he was a basketball player, not a TV broadcaster. So uh, one of the things that he was very good at was saying, look, I'm going to learn as much as I can about this new world of television and have an open mind about it. Uh, there was no arrogance, no expectations. He just went in there and learned. And, and I said to him, will you teach me as much as you can about basketball? That way, I think going into the, the relationship with the right attitude, it was good. And we, uh, we really enjoyed it. Bill, I'm curious as to, was there a moment where you realized, you know, how big the NBA was in Australia? I know Jam Session came out, I think it was twice, maybe 93 and 94. They bought players there. Um, obviously the coverage was growing. Was there a single moment or a, or a point in time where you realised how big an impact you guys were having on fans like myself and, and like Adam? Yeah, that's a good example of the jam session, actually. But the, the other one was uh, we had a weekly competition where you get to draw stuff and we'd give away fan gear. And, boy, did we get some mail for that. It was amazing. I, I couldn't believe the number of kids out there who were prepared to sketch, draw, paint or whatever it was like being on one of those, uh, you know, in the kids' shows where they get the kids to do stuff and yeah. for competitions. So we used to run competitions and get the kids to send in drawings and stuff. And some of them were even drawings of Steve and me just for a joke. And we really enjoyed those because they were great. There was, In fact, I've kept some of those, you know. Um, I'd like to meet, actually, some of the, the 30-something guys who actually drew some funny cartoon <laughs> of Steve and I and see what they look like now because, they'll, gee, some of the stuff was good and very funny too. There's, there's a great one of me when the Sonics were playing the Lakers in a series. Some guy drew a st I, I took the side of the Sonics just for the hell of it because uh, my team was the Jazz. And, of course, they never made Well, they didn't make the finals anyway, but they're in the playoffs. But Steve was a Lakers fan, and, and some guy drew a picture of me dunking on Steve wearing a Seattle Sonics uh, <laughs> singlet. It was very funny. Gee, there's some clever people out there. But that was, that was a good indication that it was just massive. And people of all ages, it was a really nice time. It sounds like it was. Now, in our combined Twitter circles, as far as followers go, there's quite a strong NBL and then also NBA-centric 
fan. So I wouldn't be surprised, Bill. You might might uh, actually have one of those people that did draw something for you back in the 90s that actually could be <laughs> even in amongst our Twitter followers. So we'll try and throw it out there once this episode goes live and we'll see if we can find somebody that may have submitted one of those drawings to you. That's a good idea, Adam. I, I um, Yeah, that'd be great because it just shows how, much, how passionate they were about the sport. And uh, yeah, it had a lot to offer. That was the other thing too, um, Todd, was the... And this is a, a bit of a Sydney-centric story, but it gives you an idea. I reckon this would never have happened in Melbourne, put it that way, because Melbourne was the spiritual home of basketball. And I went down to Melbourne and I visited, you know, local courts and they were just your old-fashioned, the parquetry was aged and they had that kind of sort of sweaty, dusty smell. It was a bit like walking into a, a really high-quality boxing gym when you're covering boxing stories and, you know, you're following a world champion around it. Yeah. It just had that smell of tradition about it and... Anyway, but Sydney was a little different, of course. Sydney was fresh and new and fickle and all those things. It was sort of like the Hollywood, I guess, for want of a better term. And for that reason, you know, Sydney had the Kings, which was also pretty fresh and new. Sydney were the Sonics way, way back when they first started, but then they, you know, evolved into the Kings. And Mike Robleski did a wonderful job. They never won a title in those days, but they knew how to run a club and make money out of it and also put on a good show for the fans. So... They were like the flashy team that was really fun to watch without actually coming up with a title, though they went close in 92. But anyway, the big thing about basketball at the time in Sydney was they built this Darling Harbour development, which is, I guess, a little bit like Docklands was not that long ago when they first started you know, building stuff there. Mm-hmm. Darling Harbour in Sydney was all this new development, and they put about, oh boy, I can't remember the exact number now, but it was at least six basketball courts, maybe more, in the centre of Darling Harbour. Well, and they were playing pickup games every day, as well as, you know, you organise stuff on weekends and things. And that place was crowded to the max with young people playing basketball. And there was this inner city subculture, all these different ethnic backgrounds. And I remember going down there and doing a story on this place, which was a real mecca for anyone who loved basketball at the time. And Anthony Mundine, who I'm sure you guys know very well, of course, of course. at the Damn. time... Yeah. Yeah, the man. At the time, he was a budding rugby league player, but he was also playing for New South Wales in basketball. And he was very conflicted at the time about which way to go with his career, rugby league or basketball. As it turned out, there was more money in rugby league, obviously. So he finished up playing rugby league for St. George. And I've known Anthony for a very, very long time. And I still remember him back as a 16, a 17-year-old playing basketball in that Darling Harbour area. And I was doing a story down there, you know, and, and interviewed him as well. And at the time, his rugby league career wasn't widely known, hadn't even thought about boxing. And uh, someone said to me, you know, that's Tony Mundine's son. And uh, I went, wow. So I went over and had a chat with him, and I've known him for that long. But that was a symbol, I think, of where basketball was at the time. And, of course, years ahead, not that many years, unfortunately, when basketball had kind of lost its grip on the youth, that place was torn down. And they'd built, they'd built, would you believe, a place called Seager World which well, was a indoors amusement centre. And yeah. that was so symbolic of what was taking place. Here we had all these courts and all these people out there in the sunshine doing some great healthy stuff. Yeah. And with no disrespect to Seager, because we all love Seager, but yeah. <laughs> they built an amusement centre where the kids are suddenly inside, sitting on their backsides, playing games or going on rides. That place has since closed down as well. But, yeah, it shows you what was going on at the time. All that stuff was really symbolic. Yeah. You know, another thing, we spoke a little bit about it off air, 
Adam myself. Another probably symbol of the popularity was the the you know the promotional appearances that that NBA players made in Australia or even coaches. Can you tell us a little bit, Bill, about your your up close experiences with interviewing you know NBA people? The funniest one was we we had a actually it wasn't a jam session. We we interviewed some players for the jam session. That was always a big deal, obviously, because NBA players were arguably hard enough to get hold of when they were back home. But uh, the first one I recall was when. Reebok was a massive supporter of basketball in those days. They sponsored the Sydney Kings. They sponsored our show. And they brought Shaquille O'Neal out to Australia. Shaq was only just out of college, I think, at the time. He'd only been in the game a couple of years or something. Yeah. But he was the biggest thing out, as you recall, as soon as he was drafted, actually before he was drafted, literally the biggest thing. Anyway, Steve really wanted that interview because he was a huge fan of Shaq's. And that was the first time I'd ever seen Steve, who was such an accomplished player, and went within a whisker. I mean, he was drafted by the Celtics, I think. He'll kill me if I get this wrong, but I think it was the Celtics. But he was drafted and got dropped after pre-season trial. So he was close to getting in the NBA himself. He, yep. That's the closest I've seen Steve to being like a fan, and he was really keen to interview Shaq. And <laughs> I don't know whether it was the, the time Shaq had spent on the plane or the fact that he'd been out partying every night that he was in Sydney but he was the most dud interview of all time. Poor old Steve was like trying to get blood out of a stone. Steve had all the knowledge. Steve even knew guys that Shaq knew. Steve was a Lakers fan. No one was better equipped to interview Shaq than Steve, but there was no way anyone was going to get... You know, Michael Parkinson could not have got anything out of Shaq that day. Uh, It was was a funny old interview. Well, it was funny because he wasn't saying much. The other one, that I got a bit luckier because there was another promotion came out in the mid-90s, uh, a couple of years after, of course, Chuck Daly had coached the Dream Team to goal in Barcelona, and that was a big deal because the Americans were allowed to you know, use all their good players and all the professionals, and that was quite an extraordinary event. In fact, I remember um, I, didn't, I wasn't in Barcelona. I was actually hosting the sports bulletin back in Sydney at the time, and we had our reporters over there. And they kept asking me questions. Oh, I'm going to interview these NBA guys, the Dream Team, and that's all anyone's talking about in Barcelona. They're not talking about who the fastest person in the world is or, you know, who's won the swimming. That All anyone wants to know about is, is the NBA. That's how big it was back then. It overshadowed the Olympics. And uh, so I had guys ringing me up from Barcelona saying, who are these blokes, what have they done? A couple of years after that, uh, Chuck Daly came out on a promotional tour to Australia and um, they rang me up and said, oh, look, Chuck loves to play golf, and he doesn't want to work too hard while he's out here, so we're going to get you to play golf with him down at Royal Melbourne, of all places. So how's that for a you know, double whammy? You get to play Royal Melbourne and with Chuck Daly. And, uh, and then you um, do an interview with him afterwards on the golf course. So we did that, and Chuck gave me a copy of uh, a book that was out at the time, which was his, his story of how the Dream Team came together. And It's a picture book primarily, but there's a lot of words in it, too. of the Dream Team, all the different players and everything, and his role in it. And he gave me an autographed copy of that afterwards, which I'm holding in my hand right now just well, to make you guys feel really bad. <laughs> well, you've, you've achieved is, that. You've made me feel really bad. But thank you for <laughs> telling us anyhow, because we know that during the Dream Team's run in 1992, Chuck Daly and some of the players and coaches and assistants and whatnot hit the links pretty much daily as well, anytime they could outside of their practice and, and games themselves. So how, how was that experience? Was it quite surreal in the fact that you were teeing it up at the, you know, the first tee at Royal Melbourne and your playing partner is none other than Chuck Daly? Yeah, and I, I'm a really crap golfer too. I love <laughs> golf, but I'm terrible at it. I, I've never been able to really master it. Uh, luckily, at that time, I, I think my kids were very young, so I was still actually okay at golf, and enough not to be, you know, 
to drive him mad. Um, well, I hit the ball reasonably straight. He's a very nice man, though. You know, you could have been the worst golfer in the world that day, and it wouldn't have spoiled his day. Uh, very nice man. Relaxed, friendly. And if you knew anything about basketball, uh, he was not snobbish about it, which is quite interesting. Um, it's a bit like that old saying, you know, the, um, the lower the grade you play a sport, the more wankers you find. Um, <laughs> the higher up the ladder you go, the less snobby and weird they are about the sport. You could have had a very limited knowledge of basketball, but as long as you like the game... Chuck would treat you with respect. And I think, you know, that's a lesson for all of us sports fans. Don't be too snobby about your sport. You know, in, embrace everybody. If they like the game, even if they don't know a lot about it, that's okay. And uh, we, we had a great time. At that time, of course, I was in the thick of it, so I did know a fair bit about it at the time. But we, we had a, a wonderful day, and it just goes to show the fraternity of the whole thing. And, and in those days, it still is, multi-multi-million dollar sport. But if you like hoops, then there's no problem. You're in. Yeah. Sounds very good. Now, in 1995, we were talking about this briefly before the recording commenced. You were talking about the opportunity that you had to interview a few NBA players and even the coach of the Houston Rockets who were taking part in the McDonald's Open in Europe. Do you mind just talking a little bit more about that, Bill, and just some of the players that you were speaking to and the opportunity that you had at that stage to do with the uh, NBA guys? Yeah, the in, in television, I, I didn't get too many of these because, un- unfortunately, at the time, I wasn't working for a very wealthy network. But uh, in TV, there's an old joke that you get stories called junkets. Uh, and I suppose it's a term that spreads right across all industry. You know, when you get a, a fairly easy, laid-back job and um, you get it to do it in a very nice place. I suppose it happens to all of us at some stage. And I have to say, the McDonald's Open, I think it, we called it the World Club Championship at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess in a sense it sort of was. But it was the Rockets, there was the Perth Wildcats, and there was, I know, Ray, I'm pretty sure Real Madrid was one of the teams. I might be wrong because my memory's really struggling now. But there was a couple of European teams there as well. I don't think there was a South American team. But anyway, it was a little tournament. And, and of course, the Rockets did the right thing, and it was more of an exhibition event, event for them, but they took Akeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler, and uh, all their top players at the time. Um, and I interviewed those two guys and Rudy T in a, in a hotel room in London. There was a lot of media there, and people were queuing up for their interviews. But I found it very, again, those two guys were very, very easy to, to talk to and get along with, and it wasn't mechanical and forced. Uh, you'd sit down for the interview, and there was obviously the pre-interview chat where your camera people and lighting people are setting up. So there's always that awkward bit of time where you've got a short time to try and befriend this person and make the interview as smooth and as interesting as possible. So you've got just a, a couple of minutes to to try and uh, create a rapport with them. And that's that's the case with all interviews of this kind. And uh, but I have to say it was really easy with guys like Clyde and Akeem, just such nice blokes, great ambassadors for the game. I suppose the fact that they weren't playing for an NBA title, for example, they're just in London on an exhibition game, you know, that makes it easier for them too. But it was just a wonderful atmosphere. And here's me running around London. They had built London at the time was developing its Docklands and had built a new basketball centre there. And they had a oh yeah, they had a team there, uh, the, the London somethings. Anyway, they, they were uh, there were all these kind of weird European teams there. It was, it was all very Mickey Mouse, but it was just a great chance to see Houston play, and it was really good. We would be uh, be crazy to obviously have this opportunity to speak to you, Bill, and not ask you about interviewing that uh, that not very well known baseball player. Um, I think his name was Michael <laughs> Jordan or something like that. Uh, we'd be crazy not to ask you about that interview experience. I think uh, summer of '95, Space Jam. Yes, well, I've spoken to people like Usain Bolt and David Beckham, and 
Usain Bolt was pretty easy. Beckham had its own accompanying weirdness, um, which wasn't his fault, I might add. And that's the thing with these guys. They're so big that they develop a, a massive entourage, and that entourage sort of runs interference for them all the time. Mm. And, and quite often, um, when you get to meet the real person, it's, it's nothing like the drama you have to go through to get there. And in the case of Jordan, it was a particularly weird time because, as you say, he'd just made the comeback. He'd played that limited season after the baseball experiment, and he was then preparing. He was in between seasons, and he was preparing for his first full season back with the Bulls. And as we all know now, they did another three-peat, which is quite extraordinary. But at the time, he was trying to get his game back in tune, and it was a little bit out of tune, uh, clearly, from those last, was it 17 games, did you say, between that he played in the NBA the prior season? Yeah, that's correct. He um, played the last 17 games of the regular season, and then they got bundled out in the second round of the playoffs to the Orlando Magic. That's right, and he was really, really unhappy about that. So here's Michael. At the same time, he'd signed up to appear in a movie called Space Jam, which is actually a pretty good thing. That, it all kind of worked very well. Anyway, I think Charles was in that and Bird as well. Jordan had a problem. He, he wanted to totally focus in, in, in you know, the way that we know he can on the coming season and get himself right. But he'd signed up to do this movie for Warner Brothers, which required him being on the Warner Brothers lot in L.A., for extensive periods of time, because this was a high-tech movie in those days. It was a mixture of real-life actors and cartoons. So he had a problem. So in his contract with Warner Brothers, he stipulated that they build him the Jordan Dome, which was a massive marquee that contained a basketball court, a gambling den, a gymnasium, (laughs) an amusement centre, kitchen, bathroom, all those things. It was a home away from home, and it was all temporary, built on the lot of the Warner Brothers set. It was just extraordinary. And anyway, Gatorade was sponsoring all this at the time. They were a sponsor of ours, and they invited us over to do an interview. So I went over, and they were running a competition as well, I think a three-on-three competition or something, and Michael was going to present a trophy to the winner, something like that. So we all went over there and got this interview, and... It was like interviewing royalty. There was all this diplomacy involved. And Gatorade said, well, we're giving him a gift when we go over there. And I said, oh, okay. So it's like going to some African republic when you're a diplomat and you have to exchange gifts <laughs> and all those things. And, and they said, yeah, well, we're giving him a gift, so you'll have to give him a gift. I said, oh, crikey. Anyway, I came up with an Akubra hat. I knew that Michael liked hats. And um, at the time, I'd invented my own board game. I had actually in the stores an NBL board game, which was a mixture of trading cards and a kind of game format, you know, where you play through a whole season and decide the outcome of games using your players uh, that you've drafted or bought for your team. It was quite complicated, and it was a board game. And, of course, typical luck for me, it was on the verge of the of the video game era when it really exploded, you know, <laughs> fantasy football and that so. <laughs> not very good time on my part, but I think I might have broke even and not lost much. But anyway, I had this board game uh, on the NBL, and I knew that Michael had known a few players who were playing in the NBL as imports in those days, including a guy called Cecil Exum. He used to play for Geelong Supercats, yeah. and Cecil uh, was a roommate of Michael's in college days, and I'd spoken to Cecil about it. So Cecil asked me to ask him if Michael was still making his own suits. He apparently made his own suits. He had no money in those days. So... Anyway, armed with a bit of inside information, I went to the Jordan Dome with the Gatorade people and we shot some stuff. And it was so... Here's how... You're sort of thinking, what, what is he going on about with this diplomacy and everything? Well, here's how regimented it was. 
Michael had to shoot this ad for Gatorade, one of a number of his sponsors. And his deal with Gatorade was, for this commercial, I will not do more than three dunks. Wow. So the commercial had to show him dunking the ball, but he would not do more than three dunks in this shoot as part of his deal. I think it might have been for his own version of occupational health and safety. I don't know. But that's how regimented these things were. So he did three dunks for the shoot which, of course, they were absolutely terrified about because if they got it wrong, if, they, if the camera wasn't rolling or, you know, the lighting wasn't right, so the people shooting it were absolutely terrified. That wasn't my job. I wasn't shooting the commercial. I was just there to shoot the interview. So my crew was set up and they were okay. <laughs> but that's how tight it was. And I was in a time limit with Michael. And after that restriction, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to get more than my allocated 20 minutes or whatever it was. But because I knew Cecil, and I also had done a bit of homework, I'd done a bit of investigative journalism, and I found out that Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, I know Jawan Howard was actually there at the time yeah, to shoot right. around. And there was a few other guys too. Some of it might have been rumour, but I threw up a few names. And I could tell by the look on Michael's face during the interview, because he didn't want anyone to know these guys were coming out for these pickup games to train with him. They're all friends of his, but of course that would mean the American media would be going nuts. And I just said, look, I've heard a few big names are coming out and playing with you. And he sort of looked at me, and then he looked up at his manager as if to say, how did he know about this? (laughs) And the look he gave his manager was really, really nasty. But he was pretty good with me. And I said, don't worry, Michael, this is only going to Australia, and it's not going to air for a couple of days. And he sort of said that. And I think his biggest fear was, as I say, just the word getting out to the American media. He liked the Akubra hat. It didn't fit. It was a bit big for him, but I reliably told him that I bought it big for him because Akubras apparently shrink after you get them all sweaty. I don't know if he ever wore that hat, and I'd love to know if he ever, because I said give the board game to your kids, and I'd love to know whatever happened to that NBL board game that I gave Michael. I mean, um, <laughs> that would be interesting to know. I think it might have even survived maybe a day before it went in the bin. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, fingers crossed. You never know. He might have given it to uh, Marcus or Jeffrey, and they... They could have even came out and been future NBL GMs. Well, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> but um, just speaking of this incredible opportunity that you had to, to interview MJ, uh, the reports were that over night time after all the filming was done for Space Jam and he'd done all his weights training and whatnot, there'd be some great scrimmages of an evening. Were you privy to seeing any of that or did you just have that one spot of time where you could turn up and, and meet him and then do the recording and the interview at that stage? Yeah, it was a very strict window, um, and once once it was done, uh, he was polite, he was friendly, don't get me wrong, and he was when I chatted with him about Cecil and a few other things, he was quite fine. And Matty White, my old mate who used to work with me at 10, uh, funnily enough, subsequent to that, Matty went to uh, America to interview Michael for another Gatorade promotion. I, I couldn't go for some reason, I don't know what happened, but Matty went and met Michael in a bar was lucky enough to meet Michael in a bar after his interview and said that he was really, you know, friendly and outgoing and, and quite quite happy. So, you know, it depends on the environment that you get them in. And But we had limited time and, and you know, everything sort of picked up and, and left. He went back to shooting the film, but the scrimmages, no way. They were absolutely kept top secret. Now, the fact that I even knew they were going on was, was alarming to them. So it was, um, it, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Having such a highly managed career, it must be quite nightmarish at times, I think, to have everything so open to scrutiny and to not be casual about anything. Yeah, very true. Now, Todd, is there anything else you'd like to ask about the Jordan interview itself? or uh, Not the interview itself. I'm yeah, more curious. We've obviously talked about the high point of popularity in Australia. I'd be curious, Bill, 
from your vantage point, how it went in the other direction from such a high point. What do you think your reasons would be why the NBA suffered in popularity sort of as the 90s faded out? Yeah, oh, I don't know, Todd. I don't know the specific answer because it, who knows what dictates fashion. It, it, it was, I think, and that was the key word, the culture was fashionable for a time and then it started to drop away and it might have been... Well, when did Michael retire? Magic, of course, made the big announcement. He retired. Uh, we'd lost Bird. I mean, it was a, a fantastic era and Michael sort of carried it on and the whole Bulls thing... It started to drop off in the mid-90s, I, I know, in terms of culture, because the trading card companies were telling us that their sales were dropping. Yeah. And, of course, trading card companies were massively involved in, in all the, everything we did. We gave away trading cards on the show, and they were a really interesting barometer, the trading card companies and the clothing companies. Not clothing to play in, clothing to wear around the streets of, of the cities. That's what it was all about. Mm. Um, so when that started to drop off, it, it, it's just, it was just a fashion thing, and I don't know which came first, to be honest, whether it was lack of interest in the game or lack of interest in the clothing or the cards. I, it, was, it was odd. But we started saying to the NBL at that time, and when I say we, I mean myself, Steve, TV producers, the stakeholders in the game. Yep. We started saying to the NBL, and I remember Billy Palmer and Malcolm Speed and those guys were running the game in those days. We were saying, you have to build a separate culture that you guys can survive on because this NBA fad is not going to last. Certainly not to the height that it is. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, even the clubs were were showcasing their American imports. And some of the clubs, not all of them, some of the clubs were deliberately importing American imports who might have been a bit flaky in other aspects of their game but were very exciting to watch. That has a logic to it. But the problem is we had, I remember Jason Smith was one of a number of players at the time, they were young Australian kids who were dunking the ball in games. Matty Campbell was one of them. Simon Dwight. Yep, yep. Sam McKinnon. Sam McKinnon was coming through as well. There's a bunch of guys who were young guys, Australian kids. They were going from the bench into the starting five and they were, they were, start, they were, they were dunking the ball. And this was a new breed of, of young Australian guys who were very athletic. And also the Boomers were going pretty well. And the Boomers had played against the um, Dream Team 2 in 1996 in Atlanta. And, of course, Hammer Heel had, had made all that publicity by his clash with uh, Charles. And so there was a lot of publicity around the national team and the Australian players. And we were saying, you have to build a separate culture, a strong culture around our homegrown players. Because when the NBA thing dies off, you're going to have something to hang on to. And the details are sketchy to me now, but I believe there was some interest in that. And there was sort of a nodding and saying, yeah, we have to do that. But it never really happened. And I don't know whose fault that was. At the same time, unfortunately, I was being pulled out of basketball at 10 by different forces. 10 had bought up the rights to motor racing at the time, and they were seeing that as a massive money spinner, which it was, and it was also blossoming. They'd found another niche audience, much the same way as they'd done with basketball a few years earlier. They found a niche audience that was a very lucrative audience with motor racing, and I was being dragged across to host that in the mid to late 90s. And I remember in 1996, I hosted my first motor racing event. I think it was a Sandown 500. And at that time, they finished up dragging me over to motor racing, and Matty White took over as the caller in the NBL. And I think not long after that, um, I think Matty was calling Kings games with uh, Timmy, the bad boy. Timmy Tim Morrissey. Morrissey, the bad boy. Tim and Matty were calling games... And then after that, Foxtel took over the NBL. And Steve Carfino went to Foxtel and was calling games there with John um, 
Isn't it terrible? How, how can I forget these names, no, guys? No, not at all. John not Casey. John Casey, Johnny Casey and Steve did a great job with the NBL at Fox Health. That's how it sort of got out of my hands. I still stayed close to the game because um, I was coaching. My son started playing and I was coaching his team, him and his mates. So I was sort of staying involved in local basketball and that. But that's how basketball sort of left me. It wasn't my sort of fault. But <laughs> right, right. That's, um, that's happened there. Now, you've been very generous with your time so far, Bill, and I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I really appreciate you chatting with us today. Uh, I'd like to just go back a bit and talk about the 1996, the pre-Olympic exhibition that you briefly touched on there, where Australia took on Team USA, and it had the infamous incident between Charles Barkley and Shane Hammerheel. Do you mind just sort of setting it up a bit about your involvement with that? Because I know that for Saturday basketball or, or for a special that was aired here back on Channel 10, you were outside the Delta Centre, you introduced the game, and then I think you were obviously down near the action where it all took place. So do you mind just going through that for us, please? Yes, I was on sacred ground. I was a Utah Jazz fan. Uh, <laughs> very strange how that came together. You know, Stockton and Malone in those days were a, a wonderful combination and a whole bunch of role players uh, never quite able to get an NBA title, never quite good enough. They're probably, you know, another great player short of doing that. But anyway, I was a big fan of John Stockton. I just thought he was a, such a great operator and a, an exceptional player, not the obviously athletic um, NBA player that you'd expect, but just a beautiful, smooth, reliable player. So I was a big fan of his. And, of course, you know, the mailman was great. So I'm in the Delta Centre just standing there thinking, wow, how good is this? I remember going to some sort of little shop there and buying a Stockton T-shirt, which I, a singlet, which I still got. My son inherited my John Stockton singlet, which he played in in local comps for years, and we've still got it hanging in his wardrobe. So he's a very keen hoops player. He plays two or three times a week still in his early 20s. Anyway, so I'm there, and I get to sit courtside. Because we were the broadcaster, I'm sitting courtside with Steve. Was Steve there? I think he was. The reason I was there, actually, I was over in Atlanta. I had to cover the 96 games for Channel 10. I was sort of like the, um, you know, the main reporter there. We didn't have the rights to it, but I was sort of over there reporting uh, on the game. So I spent a long time over in Atlanta and, and around the place, and that was one of the preliminaries calling this game. And, yeah, Hammer took a, you know, I, I think there was a little bit of showmanship involved there. You know, the dream team's the dream team. The Australians were completely outclassed, but they didn't want to go away without people remembering who they were. So, and Hammer's former Golden Gloves boxing champion. He wouldn't take a backward step on the court. Charles was sort of muscling people around, and Charles is, you know, one of those guys. And Charles had been known in the past to treat, uh, you know, lesser teams with contempt, all part of the game, of course. He, he was a wonderful show. I'm a huge fan of Charles Barkley. Yeah, they got into a bit of a scuffle and hammer, you know, a bit of push and shove, and it was fantastic. And, and standing there courtside, we're just looking at each other thinking, how good is this? It just doesn't get any better than this. And at the end of the game, the players just stood around on the court and I walked out on the court with my camera crew and we just walked around interviewing players, Stockton being one of them. I resisted the temptation to stand there like a, a goofy and go, I can't believe I'm talking to John Stockton. I sort of <laughs> pretend it was cool and easy, you know. <laughs> I do this every day. <laughs> How was it, though, actually being able to chat to him? Because obviously you're holding him in high regard. And uh, what was it like just being there and, and having even just a brief moment of his time? Yeah, well... He's just such a professional. It's funny, you talk to guys like that who clearly don't have the uh, the height and all those other tools that the great players have, but you could just tell that this guy was just so professional in, in everything he did and such a gentleman in the way he spoke. Um, he just had it covered. Everything he did and said was just very measured 
And I can't remember what, you know, obviously we talked about the game and, and you know, the basic things, but it was just the, everything I expected it to be. He was a very impressive person. You, you expect a guy like John Stockton to be a politician afterwards, you know, because he actually, no, he's too eloquent and uh, actually answers <laughs> questions. So he couldn't be a politician. No, that's right. But, uh, <laughs> so, but, but it was good. He, he was, it was a real pleasure. And I don't recall, I might have interviewed Charles on the court, I don't recall it because they're all brief interviews, obviously, post-game. You're not sitting down for long chats. You're just doing quick quick interviews. I, but I definitely interviewed Charles at the CNN Centre in uh, Atlanta sometime later. And that's quite a funny story because we were all hanging out in the CNN Centre. That was our base for covering the Olympics uh, in those days because CNN was based in Atlanta. Yep. And we had hired some rooms there and we had some CNN staff acting as liaison to sort of help us out. And anyway, we're sitting in the CNN Centre one, uh, one evening and someone said, oh, there's a whole flurry of activity. Charles Barkley's in the building. And all the American staff were running around, you know, trying to get a glimpse of Charles or an autograph and all those things. So Charles was in the, in the building. And I said to somebody there, I said to one of the staff, oh, we, we should get an interview. So I grabbed the camera crew and they said, oh, you got no chance. He said he's definitely not doing interviews. He's only coming in for a CNN interview and that's it. He's not doing any other stuff. And I thought, what do I do? What do I do? So I grabbed Sandra Sully, who was over there with me at the time, and I said, Sully, get over here. I said, you're going to help me get an interview with Charles because he'll notice you. (laughs) So anyway, I went down there with Sandra, and Charles was walking down the stairs heading out of the building, and I just raced down and grabbed him, and I took Sandra with me, and um, and he sort of stopped and noticed then. He, I, don't think, I think he would have walked right over the top of me, but uh, <laughs> anyway, we stopped there, and we're, we're chatting with him and said, oh, we've come all the way from Australia and covering the Olympic Games, and we, when we found out you are in the building, we had to come and say hello, and of course, that was as soon as he said, Australia, wow, you know, and he said, we just played them over here. I said, yeah, and he had a bit of a set to with my mate, Shane Hill, who was a friend, obviously, in those days, uh, still is, but... And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you know, that was fun. And anyway, so I grabbed the camera. I said, oh, can we do a quick interview for Australia? Yeah, yeah no worries. So we got Charles Crazy. near the entrance to the CNN building. That was fun. And he's one guy. Uh, I've done a lot of interviews. He's one guy that I'd still like to just sit down and do a long interview with because I've always thought he was just fantastic. I, I love the way he does things. It's great. Yeah, definitely. And obviously Shane Hill lit it up in that game against the Team USA. I know Australia got beaten comprehensively, but he hit about seven or eight three-pointers, had about 28 points. So he made a name for himself, and that led in no small part to him getting that contract with the Minnesota Timberwolves as well, given the exposure he had against the greatest players in the world. That's right. And that was huge publicity for us. It was huge for the NBL. And and Shane will, to this day, shiver, I think, when he remembers Minnesota. I think he described it to me as the coldest place on earth. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm sure that's not accurate, but it probably felt like it in those days. And, you know, Shane was not only famous for his threes, but he hit them from way downtown. He used to be way outside the key on some of the threes he hit, which always used to, I think, shock some of the, the opposing defences. Now, now that you mentioned that, I'm pretty sure when we played at the Delta Centre, because in those days, the NBA three-point line was further out than the NBL three-point line. Yep. Now, you've just jogged something in my memory, and I'm trying to think now whether they, they would have had the NBA three-point line, I'm sure, at the Delta Centre. And Shane and the other guys would have been familiar with hitting their threes outside the traditional FIBA three-point line. So that would have made it just a little bit more tricky for him. But I think that's why Shane, we might have even mentioned it in commentary, and Shane might have been a little bit more comfortable with it because he used to hit his threes from way outside back in Australia. 
Oh, no doubt. He was hitting shots in that particular game, and he did for his whole career, really, but he was like 25, 26 feet out, and he would just jack up shots. Mm. He had John Stockton was in his face for a couple of those ones in that game, and he still got nothing but net, and Hubie Brown uh, yep. was commentating, and he just couldn't believe the range that Hammer had. So, yeah, some incredible memories, no doubt. Actually, did I, you, now that you mentioned it, I don't know if we called that game. I think we just hosted it. And I think Hubie Brown might have been the call. Well, yeah, if you saw, if you heard Hubie Brown's call, well, you would have sent it back here, wouldn't you? Yeah, what I remember of it was pre-game, as far as the telecast here in Australia, you were outside the Delta Centre setting the scene yep. for the match. Yep. And then we got the TBS the coverage. Film. I'm pretty sure it was TBS coverage. And Hubie yep. Brown, and I think it might have been Dick Stockton, perhaps, were the commentators. So were you actually in the arena as well, yes. though, calling your own version too? We were sitting courtside. Now that you mention it, see, this is so long ago, but now that you mention it, we did a call, I think, on the basis that we were going to hopefully use our call. Uh, uh, but we didn't, yeah, I think at, at some stage. But, yeah, that was vaguely what I remember. But I think we knew at the time, now that you mention it, that we weren't, that it wasn't going to be used. Because I, I don't know whether we did the game live or not. I can't remember now. I think it was shown but, on a um, Saturday afternoon, maybe the following week. Uh, was it? Uh, okay, so it was delayed. And I think we might have done the call hoping they'd use our commentary, but it probably didn't work out. But I was over there basically to cover the Olympic Games. It, it wasn't. It was a bit of a uh, hastily put together coverage, obviously. I'm now even wondering whether Steve was there. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the memory Isn't does to us terrible? over the years, Bill. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, but I. No, as that's you fine. mentioned, I... I have been around to a lot of places all over the world, so it does. Sometimes it does get a bit blurry. That is audio, though, that I would love to have uh, heard had the Australian, like your call of the game, actually come through to us. But yeah, we got the TBS coverage. I think you got the better coverage. Trust me, I'm sure Hubie and Dick would have done a much better <laughs> job than we did. But ours would have been probably more biased. It would have been amusing for that for that reason, I think. Yeah, that's that's the main reason I would have loved to have heard it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so we're coming up on pretty much an hour, Bill, so you've been so generous oh, really? with your time. I, I don't want to hold you much longer, but Todd, do you have any other questions that you'd like to ask while we've got Bill on the phone? Oh, I'm just staggered, you know, the the amount of people that you spoke to in five or six years that you covered the NBA. I know you moved on to, to other sports and other avenues. You know, the period of your broadcasting career that was basketball, um, you know, it's pretty close to you still. Oh, look, it, as I say, it's um, it's funny, but... I look back on those years really fondly. Not only was it the first time I was actually involved in in big interviews and, and live sports coverage, that's where I cut my teeth, so to speak, and it was from that experience that I sort of built on all the other stuff that I was moved into. And, um, yeah, my, I haven't been able to pick and choose so much in my career because, as I say, I basically was the network journeyman. So uh, wherever the network wanted to take me, I, I went there. But I was very fortunate that I went to some really wonderful places and, Look, the motorsport fraternity were very good to me as well, and I've made some very good friendships out of that lot as well. But the basketball years, well, to give you an example, the best example would be, would you believe, not long after Channel 10 regained the rights to the NBL, this is a few years ago now, when Foxtel dropped it and 10 picked it up, they staged a tournament in uh, Adelaide, which was like the Indian Premier League cricket. They had people put together teams and they appointed all kinds of people to, to, to create their teams, you know, former players and coaches and things like that. And they had this sort of IPL-style basketball tournament that went for a week in Adelaide. And I don't know how it came about, but somebody said, Bill, would you like to go and call these games, because we're putting them on 10 during the day, with Steve and get the, the old crew back together? Yeah. And it had been 15 years, so, 15 years since we first called together. And Steve and I trooped off to Adelaide 
we sat down in the the powerhouse there, and they had players from the states and you know guys from the what do they call it now? It was the CBA, the ABA, the second tier league, and uh, and a few NBL players. But the NBL was having a bit of a blue with the organisers, so they didn't have many NBL players in it at the time. But anyway, we put this tournament to wear, and Steve and I sat together and we looked at each other and thought, how is this going to go? You know. We just clicked into gear straight away. It was as if we had never, ever stopped calling. I'm not saying it was good. I mean, <laughs> I'll let the spectators be the judge. But we, as, as, a, as a couple, just clicked straight into gear again. And I was running into all these guys. Pat Reedy comes up to me and shakes his head and says, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and uh, from that moment on, uh, and then Pat, and Pat goes, oh, we're on the team bus coming to the stadium uh, this morning for practice, and I saw you jogging through the streets of Adelaide. He said, you look like crap. And, uh, and, and from that moment on, it was like I, nothing had changed. It, we'd just gone back in time to the old days. It was fantastic. And, and I, in the intervening years, as, as I mentioned, I've coached my son's team and he's played and still plays basketball. He's a massive NBA fan. He knows far more about the current NBA than I could even dream of. He's totally across everything. It's not my business anymore, so I've only got a very basic you know, knowledge of what's going on these days. And we watch it together. But he's with the internet and all the other technological changes. All the fans now have massive access. Uh, he subscribes to the NBA TV service on the internet. Uh, he pays for that subscription every year. And uh, he watches all the games or as many games as he can. He's a massive Rockets fan, funnily enough. And when I told him about that experience with Houston back in 1994, he was only a couple of years old. Uh, he just thought, wow, I was born way too late. But anyway, <laughs> it, um, I still have a, a good, close relationship with the game and the people in it. So that'll never change. Oh, that's fantastic. And just a couple more quick points, if you don't mind. Back in the 1990s, of course, Andrew Gaze was Australia's greatest player. He's still still known as Australia's greatest player, in my opinion, to this day, for sure. But how was your interaction with him? I know, obviously, Steve Carfino and, and Drewy were commentating for a number of years together as well. I couldn't let the interview go without actually mentioning the great Andrew Gaze. Do you mind just talking for a moment about your time spent with Andrew? Oh, not at all. I still greet Drewy. I have ever seen, but I still greet him like an old mate. Uh, he was so good for the game in so many ways. He was always like a, a big kid who just loved playing. And um, and I say that in the nicest way. Mm. He, he had a wonderful, wonderful attitude to the game. And, uh, I, look, I couldn't have been happier for him when he finally got a championship ring. I know that his contribution was limited uh, with Spurs, but I just thought that was the most appropriate thing for a bloke of his talent to to have that happen. And anyone who criticises or suggests that he actually didn't deserve that ring doesn't know the game because he had been in the NBA at, at his peak. Uh, he would have you know, more than held his own. But getting over to Spurs at the time he did, uh, he did play college ball for a while. That was big publicity. Seton Hall was the college yeah. that he played for. And that got a bit of publicity out here. Uh, didn't get drafted or anything. But that's a guy who thoroughly deserves everything he's got from the game. And, and a great ambassador for, for Australian sport as well. You know, his involvement in the Olympics is um, is also been really important. And just, I don't know, a, one of those fantastic guys, if you had a role model, you look at guys like Andrew Gaze and Pat Rafter, people like that who weren't nasty or snobby about anything. They, they just were just nice, down-to-earth blokes, played hard, but were just wonderful off the court. And my funniest memory of Drewy was... We went to an NBL presentation one night. They used to rotate them, and this one was in Sydney, and I was hosting it. It was at Luna Park, and part of the fun, you know, of the night was that we got to use some of the rides, 
and Drewy and I went on a ride. We went on a Ferris wheel together, and Drewy's afraid of heights. <laughs> and uh, I guess you could make a funny joke about Drewy being afraid of heights, a guy who in his illustrious career did everything except dunk the ball. So you could kind of make a gag about that. But anyway, <laughs> my wife was with us at the time, and we went on the Ferris wheel, my wife and I, and Drewy didn't have his wife with him at the time. I think he was just on his own because he was, you know, sort of there to present and all those things. But anyway, <laughs> we're going up in this Ferris wheel, and he was seriously, seriously terrified. And I thought that was most amusing. The irony there is that he's reached great heights in basketball and spent most of his time amongst some of the tallest players in the world. But um, there he was, looking really uncomfortable on this Ferris wheel. But yeah, that gives you an idea what sort of guy he was. Very down to earth, and I wish him well. Yeah, definitely. Just a, a perfect example of that. My podcast was only up to its fourth episode overall. And I reached out to ask Andrew Gaze, not even really thinking he'd he'd uh, say yes, but I asked if he'd want to chat with me about his career. And he replied back the very next day and said, sure, just let me know a time. And then he gave me over an hour and a half of his time to just chat about his whole career. So he's a fantastic guy and a great ambassador for the sport, no doubt. Absolutely. doesn't surprise me at all. He, he would do that. Just so enthusiastic about the game. And if you love the game, as I said before, you know, it doesn't matter how much you know about it. As long as you love the game, that was important to him. He's a, he's a pretty rare commodity, Jerry Gaze, that's for sure. And uh, one, of the, one of the real good ones. Definitely. Now, I just want to quickly hark back just to the NBA Jam session for a moment. The Phoenix Gorilla made a visit to our shores here oh, in Australia, yeah. Bill. And I've seen some footage of you where he unfairly, I might add, beat you in an arm wrestle and then also <laughs> proceeded to push you into a doorway and make you fall on the floor. So do you mind just talking about your run-ins with the Phoenix Gorilla? Yeah, that well, I have to admit, um, this will be a scoop for you, world exclusive, yeah, we set that up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no way. Oh, I never would have guessed. <laughs> this may surprise you, but, yeah, he, he was a wonderful bloke too. He was a gymnast. Uh, that, that won't surprise you either. The Phoenix Gorilla, we loved our mascots in those days, and Steve used to always say on the show, I would love to have been a mascot. The one thing that I really regretted in my career was not being a mascot. Steve was actually thinking more like what he could get away with with the girls uh, <laughs> when he's talking about that, and uh, with good reason, because mascots get away with murder. They can go up and, you know, put their arms around the girls, get a kiss, all those things, because they're wearing a fluffy suit. Go figure. Anyway, the gorilla was, as you know, a huge, uh, hugely popular mascot in those days, and he'd done some amazing stunts. We used to show them on the show all the time, and when he came out for the jam session... I couldn't wait to meet him, and I, the first thing I thought of was, we've got to do an interview here, and we can have some fun with this. So I went there, and he is under strict contract. He has an airtight contract about what he can and cannot do as the Phoenix Suns gorilla. And one stipulation in that contract where, you know, he would have been shot by a firing squad if he spoke. He is not allowed to talk. He has a mind that goes with him, and uh, the whole mystique of the gorilla must be maintained. So he has a mind that goes with him and speaks for him. Now, at one stage, we were chatting and setting up what we were going to do. I had the privilege of the Phoenix Suns gorilla leaning over to me and whispering in my ear <laughs> so that no one would know he was talking to me. And I can't remember the exact words, but I'd said something about, oh, can we do a little setup shot at the end? I've got something in mind because it was one of the other mascots. He walked into the pole at one of the games was it, what was the Utah Jazz mascot? Uh, he's still going around. They had the, a, uh, the bear. They had a it bear. Was, they had a bear, and there was a Sasquatch. There were some weird ones going around. Anyway, he walked one of them into a pole at one of the games over there, 
and I thought we can get him to do this with me. I actually talked about it, and the person who was minding him said, oh, I don't know if we've got time for that. But he was having so much fun. He leaned over and whispered in my ear, it's okay, we'll do whatever you want. <laughs> and so I was one of those privileged people who actually was spoken to by the Phoenix Suns gorilla, and he sounded like a kid because he was only he was a gymnast. They get gymnasts to do these things because obviously they do all those stunts. Yeah. And um, he was just a young bloke, but he had this great contract where you know it was quite lucrative, I'm sure, but he couldn't do anything. And so we, I said, I want you to do this, what you did over there, and we'll set it up. So we did it with the doorway, and I thought it worked quite well. And funnily enough, they showed it recently when I left 10. They played some tribute video at the end of the news, and that was on it, which I thought was terrific. Yeah, it was. That's, that's where I actually saw it. When I was researching for our chat, I came across that footage, and it was just fantastic, and it brought back some great memories for me. So I can only imagine it would do the same for yourself as well. Well, sitting upstairs um, in the same area as my dream team book signed by Chuck Daly is a little gorilla signed by the gorilla. Oh, you've done very well. <laughs> I've got a lot of stuff like that um, lying around, all under lock and key. I don't know what I'm going to do. My kids will probably all have it one day, but that's pretty cool. Uh, it definitely is. It's fantastic. Now, just one last thing, Bill. Uh, earlier this year, you launched a digital sports portal named SportsFan. It's sportsfan.com.au. Do you mind just talking a little bit about your involvement in that and also what you're up to these days post-Channel 10? Well, yeah, the, the funny thing about commercial TV, one of the reasons why all the networks and indeed the newspapers, for that matter, are, are finding their revenues declining, is, as, as you guys know and, uh, and as you're very much a part of, is the internet and, and this massive breadth of all kinds of coverage on the internet. I guess you could say this was a case of if you can't beat them, join them because... Um, Moments after I left 10, I, I had the phone call to, to come and see what they're doing here at the, the sports fan website. It used to be called Telstra Big Pond, and they've really ramped it up now because they want to make it complementary to all the Telstra products. But the bottom line is it's a, an IPTV show. It's, it's an Internet-based television show that's on every night at 8 o'clock live. You can stream it live. Mm -hmm. But it also is available afterwards on the site just by clicking on it and watching it. And it's also broken up into VODs, which they then send out to all the mobile services. But you don't have to be a Telstra customer to access any of this. It's free on the SportsFan application. So you can get the SportsFan app on whatever mobile device you've got. Yep. And it doesn't matter what contract you have, you can actually access it. And you can watch the shows on your mobile. And apparently its take-up is, is quite strong with you know your average commuters. And anyone who lives in Sydney would know you spend more hours on a train or a bus than you do anywhere else in your life. Um, Melbourne's got a good transport system and other cities have got, you know, better transport systems, but Sydney, Sydney's a bit of a nightmare. So <laughs> they expect people, yeah, everyone in Sydney apparently watches screens on the bus and train for a couple of hours each day going to and from work. So that's kind of the audience that it's sort of designed for. And it, it's very much new age stuff, but basically it's still old fashioned TV. It's, it's a bunch of athletes uh, and myself. <laughs> I have to make that distinction. A um, bunch of athletes and myself uh, sitting around a desk talking about the news of the day. And, of course, uh, a lot of it involves storytelling. And, and the experience of the, the people on the panel are very, is a very important part of the show. All, whatever we talk about, the subjects um, are, are varied, of course, from incidents and events in sport. Unfortunately, a lot of stuff about Asada this year. But there's a lot of discussion and, and relativity to the experiences of the, of the people on the panel. And people like uh, Brad Seymour former Sydney Swans player, the, the, the McVeigh brothers uh, have been regular guests. Jared's comes on a lot. So does Mark. We've got Brad Fittler, Matthew Burke. They're, they're, they're all regular guests. Uh, 
Lizzie Ellis, netballer, Kerry Potast, uh, Olympic gold medalist, beach volleyball, uh, Mika Bucken, who's a former SBS presenter, is on there. She used to play tennis. And Renee Gartner, who's boxing and was also heavily involved in, in rugby league as a media manager for years. It's also a regular on the show. So there's a lot of experience there in different areas. We just have a lot of fun. And the whole idea is it's, uh, it's meant to be intelligent but irreverent. We, we sort of stress that sports shouldn't be taken too seriously. So it, it, it fits a groove that I never quite nailed. Steve and I had a wonderful time covering basketball. We could sit back and make a few gags and, and joke, and we had that sense of humour going. I had the same thing with Barry Sheen in motor racing, and we did some shows over the years, even Sports Tonight. I tried to make a reverend at times when I was doing it, but I have to say this show is, is right into a groove that I was never quite able to achieve in, in all the shows that I did on 10 for various reasons. It's just laid back. If something happens that's kind of unexpected and funny, we'll go with it and see where it takes us. And yep. sometimes it'll take us quite a long way. But if we think it's interesting or funny, we'll let it go. And it's that kind of uh, looseness and irreverence that I really like. And uh, it sort of suits my personality well. I love my news reading, don't get me wrong. I've always enjoyed that. And that was that's sort of where I come from originally. But we all have a serious side and we all have a sense of humour. And, and this show really does appeal to my love of sport and my sense of humour. Yeah, that's a definitely an, an apt description there. And I've been checking it out regularly in the last few months since I started following you on Twitter. I can definitely yeah, vouch for that as well. It's really interesting and you cover a wide range of sports and you've got some great personalities and, and sports people involved as well. So it's definitely worth checking out. Um, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you on Twitter? Bill, how, how can they follow you? What's your Twitter handle? At BMR Woods. Excellent. Steve is a regular guest on the show too and, and will be more so when the NBA season starts again. So we still hang out together a bit, Steve and I play golf and things like that. I'm still trying to play golf. Um, and uh, except again, like Chuck Daly, he can play. But um, it, it, we still kick back on the show. And uh, it, it, Steve, I don't know if you've seen him on the show, Adam, but um, Steve is wild. I mean, again, that's something he's wanted to do too because he can he can cut loose a bit. Because Steve and I used to have to be a little bit restrained sometimes, especially when you know mostly kids watching. Yes. Um, but Steve, uh, we have a pretty wild sense of humour and. I think the funniest one recently, I don't know if you saw it, but we had a, a photograph of a guy who was who'd put himself inside the body of a shark. I don't know if you saw that, but I haven't seen some that guy one. with a shark, he's, he's cut the shark open somehow and climbed inside it to make it look like the shark swallowed him. <laughs> and he's got his head sticking out of the shark in his arm, and, and they've taken a photo of it. And Steve's comment was, <laughs> you'd never see a black man do that. Only a white man <laughs> enough to climb inside a shark. <laughs> and it was just the most random, weird comment. Um, and it, it just, we were all just all speechless. It was really funny. So that gives you an idea what kind of show it is. Yeah, I haven't actually seen that clip in particular, but I know that uh, from what I have seen, you definitely do like to take the lighter side of things as well from time to time, which is good to see. Yeah, it's great fun. It's great fun. Todd, is there anything that you'd like to add, mate, before we wrap this up? No, just it's been a thrill to talk to you, Bill. For those of us who, uh, you know, the origin of our love of basketball came from Saturday mornings watching yourself and Steve. Uh, you know, it's been great to speak to you, so we uh, owe you a big thanks. Oh, no, it's a pleasure, mate. It really is. And uh, I'm just so pleased. You know, we, we did our best. It wasn't great in those days. We were all still learning, I think. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad you, you picked up on the fact that we, we, uh, we love the game and we're just trying to do our best to bring it to people at the time when, you know, not many people had the chance to see it. Now, of course, it's a very different landscape. It's a real smorgasbord out there. So it's great. It's great that, you know, we're able to generate a, a strong support base. And let's hope, let's hope that a basketball gets back to where it used to be in Australia. As a top-tier sport, it would be wonderful. 
Yeah, definitely is. And and just on behalf of Todd, I'd like to yeah, thank you again, Bill, for making yourself available for this amount of time. It's been fantastic. And your shows back in the early 90s are what helped foster our love for the game as well. So thanks very much. Anytime, mate. Keep in touch. Thanks again, Bill. It was a pleasure chatting with you. I encourage you to interact with the show. Suggest topics for future episodes or guests that you'd like to hear conversations with. I welcome voicemail comments or questions on my website or Facebook page. I want to personally thank Tim Coyne, a.k.a. Tim San Francisco, for his written iTunes review on the US store. He also sent me an incredibly glowing email with wonderful feedback about the podcast. Thanks very much for that, Tim. Great inspiration. The show currently has 15 five-star ratings on the Australian iTunes store and three five-star ratings on the US store. That's also fantastic. If you add a review, I'd love to mention your name in a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are, as I like to say, the ultimate assist. They help me reach a wider audience. If I've somehow overlooked a review that you have added, please do let me know and I'll give you a shout out in the next episode. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes or you can simply add my RSS feed. Check out the right-hand sidebar of my website. You can hear the show on Stitcher, Player FM and other podcatchers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues. Inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash InAllAirness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.